You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Do you believe everything you hear about eucalypts? Dean Nicole is a botanist, arborist and gum nut that established and manages Currency Creek Arboretum, which is the largest collection of eucalypt species in the world. This episode is part three in our four-part series celebrating National Eucalypt Day on the 23rd of March, and it's inspired by an article Dean wrote for Remember the Wild called Eucalypt Mythbusting, a comprehensive guide. In that article, he addressed some of the stereotypical myths that get thrown around, such as eucalypts are widowmakers, eucalypts poison the soil, and so on. Check out the show notes for links, follow the Plants Grow Here podcast, and share this episode with your friends and colleagues so we can get this information to those that need to hear it. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Dean. No, that's all right. Can you start by telling us, are eucalypts really widowmakers? Yeah, sure. A lot of it will come down to this same premise, and that is that there's so many species of eucalypts. So at the moment, there's generally regarded to be around about 850 different species of eucalypts. So it's a large group of plants. And if you include subspecies and varieties, you're talking about over a thousand different terminal taxa. They're sort of the endpoints in terms of the, the naming of them, so subspecies and species. So it's really difficult to generalize when it comes to talking about the characteristics of eucalypts and the risks that they pose to people and to property. So the, the term widowmaker, that was well, it's a historic term, I guess you could say, that came about through early foresters in Australia, and I'm not sure if it was also used overseas, when trees were being cut, cut down to use for for timber, if they had dead hanging snags in the tree, often they'd fall out as soon as the tree started to to collapse, collapse when it was cut down. And of course, you know, if one of those dead hanging branches hit somebody and they were married to somebody else, and that's where the term widowmaker comes from. But I'm not I'm not 100% sure if it originated in Australia or if, if the term originated overseas. But certainly within Australia, it's historically been used in the in forestry circles, although now it's applied generally to, to eucalypts or gum trees in general, although you know it's a stereotype that, that really doesn't apply to most species because so many species of eucalypts are, are smaller trees or aren't trees at all. They're multi-stem mallees or, or shrubs. So, you know, even if they shed a branch, if it's below head height, you've got to be unlucky to be to be seriously injured by something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's unfortunate in urban environments that there are a lot of people that will complain about any eucalypt in any place, basically, especially in a park, and they'll sometimes want to have them removed. What do you think about that? A lot of the fear around not just eucalypts, but trees in general is perceived risk. It's not always a real risk that people, a real risk that's there. It's something that, you know, is going on inside people's heads because they might have seen a branch fall off a tree elsewhere, or they might have seen a media article about a tree falling on a car. 
or injuring somebody or even killing somebody. That does happen from time to time. But in the overall scheme of things, it's it's a really rare event. And that's the case with all trees, not not just eucalypts. Within Australia, of course, the most dominant tree species or tree group we have by far is the eucalypts. They dominate most natural landscapes and they also dominate most urban landscapes in terms of in terms of the tree cover. So if you in a storm event, if you do get a tree failure or a branch failure, just by sheer numbers, it's likely to be from a eucalypt. But in other parts of the world where other types of trees are more common, so in the colder climates of Europe, for example, the trees that most commonly injure people aren't eucalypts because eucalypts occur in much lower numbers and it's going to be whatever tree species is dominant in those areas. So eucalypts have a bit of a bad rap because most tree-related failures are eucalypts just simply because eucalypts dominate most trees that we have here in Australia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's exactly right. And now I'm going to come on to another stereotype. Do you think that all eucalypts have invasive roots that can cause damage to structures? Again, it's difficult to generalise because there's so much diversity in the group. But as a general rule, within the eucalypts and within trees in general, the larger a tree is, the more extensive its root system is and the larger the biomass of the root system as well. So a lot of the damage that's done from the roots of trees is actually just caused by the roots increasing in diameter over time, just like the trunk of a tree will increase in diameter over time. And that increase in diameter of the roots displaces soil, and that displaced soil has to go somewhere. So generally it's heaved up around, you know, at ground level. And if there's a footpath there or a driveway or even a, you know, a, a house, depending on the type of footings, it may be displaced as well as the soil. So the roots don't even necessarily have to be in contact with a structure for the roots to cause damage. And yeah, like I said, the larger the tree, the more soil it will displace. But when we get more specific, we can start looking at the root distribution of of different species. So if we look at a Morton Bay fig, obviously they're fairly surface rooted. So they tend to cause more damage to whatever structures might be around it. And within the eucalypts, it's the same. Some species tend to be shallow rooted, other species tend to be deep rooted. So something like a river red gum or a spotted gum, they tend to be deep rooted species. So you're able to grow grass underneath them, grow plants underneath them. They tend not to damage structures so much because the roots are deeper. But even roots that are many metres deep, if they're increasing in diameter and displacing enough soil, then the ground will heave at ground level. And so the potential for displacement of structures and damage to structures is always there. Right. So maybe it's less about eucalypts can cause damage to structure and it's more about trees can cause damage. Exactly. And so again, within Australia, eucalypts are more likely to cause damage because (laughs) we have a lot more eucalypts. Exactly. So it's a numbers game again. (laughs) Well, what about borers and termites and other pests? Do they attract pests? Yeah, this is an interesting one. When people refer to pests and diseases, I often look at them as just biodiversity. So Mm. things such as longer corn borers, mistletoe, lerps, scale, a lot of the 
commonly described pests and diseases of eucalypts are actually Australian native species. You know, they're, they're animals or they're fungi or, or plants in the case of mistletoe. And they've always been here. They've always been part of the ecology with eucalypts. And so just because a eucalypt has borers doesn't mean that the tree is unhealthy, doesn't mean that the, you, you need to get rid of those borers. You really need to look at it as, as part of the ecology, part of the environment of the tree itself. Generally, if we, if, we're, if we talk specifically about borers, they only become a problem in certain eucalypt species if, if the plant is under stress, such as if it's under drought stress, which is occurring all through Australia or, or a lot of parts of Australia because of reduced rainfall over the last few decades. And when the plant's under stress, it can't combat borers as much as it would as if the plant was healthy. So one of the things that a lot of eucalypts do to keep borer numbers in check is they exude a sap called keno, which basically suffocates borers within the tree. And the tree's exuding that sap all the time, the borers, you know, eating away at parts of the wood all the time. And it's just an ongoing arms race, I guess you could say. And the tree continues on living. But when the tree's under stress, it can't exude that sap or that keno to the extent as it would when the tree is healthy. So that's when the borers may build up in numbers and reach a level where, it, where they will do damage to the tree. But the underlying cause is always something else. It's always something to do with the environment or the tree being unhealthy because of, because of the environment or something that's otherwise happened to the tree, such as root damage in an urban environment. And that's a story that comes up again and again in horticulture is that it's the weak plants that are more susceptible to pests and diseases. Yep. So if you've got something that's well suited to the site, well suited to the climate, the rainfall, the soil, all those pests and diseases will still be there, but they just won't be there at the numbers where it causes a problem to the plant. So you're exactly right. What about termites? If we see termites in a uke, should we get really concerned about our property? No, if you see termites in your house, that's when you need to be concerned. But but, but within a tree, <laughs> particularly within a, within a eucalypt in Australia, again, all the termites that eat the wood of eucalypts in Australia, they're all Australian native species. So the trees cope with them fine. Australian native termites also only eat the dead wood of eucalypts and the dead wood doesn't you know, it isn't useful for the plant from a biological point of view. Obviously, it may be useful from a structural point of view. So, so termites don't affect the health of a tree. Sometimes they can impact on the structure of a tree to an extent where, you know, the tree has a higher likelihood of structural failure. But generally speaking, again, with pests and diseases in general, if the tree is healthy, it's not generally a problem. So the way termites work in eucalypts is that they eat the dead wood from the centre or the pith of the, the wood outwards. And as the tree grows, it's continually putting on wood on the outside of the trunk, on the outside of the branches and the roots. And so as long as the wood that's being put on is at an equal rate or a greater rate to what the termites are eating the centre of the tree, then the tree never becomes weaker. Of course, if the tree dies, then it's not putting on new wood. The termites continue eating the dead wood and then you may have a structural failure. So, so it's in dead trees where termites are a, can be a major problem, not in live trees. It's fine to have termites in trees around your house. The main thing is you have to have your house treated for termites or, or some sort of barrier between the trees and the house because houses 
the timber part of any house is built of deadwood, so they're not putting on that live wood all the time. So termites can impact structures like that fairly easily. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's going to be a different professional. That's not an arborist or a horticulturist that's going to be advice about keeping termites out of a house. That's actually a termite professional. Yep. So I work in an area where there are a lot of acreages and I always tell clients that if you have especially a dead eucalypt or any dead wood really, try and keep it standing if you can. Can you speak to the benefit of leaving dead eucalypts alive and even allowing pests and diseases to live in your trees? Yeah, certainly. And and it's not just dead whole trees, it's also dead branches and, and particularly dead branch stubs. Often one thing that happens with live trees when they're being pruned by an arborist is the first thing they'll prune out of the tree is all all the dead parts of the trees and the dead stubs as well. But often they're the safest parts of the tree and they're also a really important part of the tree, particularly where hollows are present because of the habitat value they present to to all sorts of animals from mammals to to birds and, and to insects as well. So a dead branch stub, if it's short, and when I say short, it really depends on the diameter of it, but generally anything less than a metre or two is relatively short for a dead stub. There's no weight on the end of it. There's no wind sail area. So the likelihood of failure of a dead branch stub is very low, generally speaking. So if you're looking at removing those dead branch stubs out of a tree, you're really just doing it for aesthetic reasons, if you think that looks nicer, that is. (laughs) But from a personal viewpoint, I think it looks better with those dead stubs because in the back of my mind, I know all the biodiversity benefits that, that those dead stubs have. And of course, that applies to a whole dead tree as well. So, you know, you, you just got many more of those potential hollows and, and habitats within the tree. Yeah. <laughs> Even letting those termites live is actually going to provide a food source for a range of creatures. Yep, that's right. Everything interacts with everything else. So, yeah, and and that's why I look at pests and diseases as as biodiversity. They're mm. they're really just things trying to live their life, and a lot of other things rely on those so called pests and diseases to as a food source or or to create habitat for the for those animals as well. Do eucalypt leaves poison the soil? Yeah, this is an interesting one because historically it's been believed that eucalypts. Or certainly some species of eucalypts are lelopathic, which means that the leaves or the chemicals in the leaves essentially poison the soil. So nothing will grow underneath eucalypts or, or where you put eucalypt mulch. But there's been a recent study done in California of all places where one particular species of eucalypt, eucalyptus globulus, a Tasmanian bluegum, very, it was very widely planted in Cal- California over 100 years ago, so it's really widespread there now. In fact, there's over 200 species of eucalypts that are commonly planted in California, but that's a whole other story. But they actually did a, a study on the allelopathy of Tasmanian bluegums over in California, and so they looked at the, the plants that would grow underneath plantations of Tasmanian bluegums and compared that to the, the type of plants and the diversity of plants that would occur in woodlands of native oaks over there. And they found the diversity was exactly the same. But what they also found is that in both cases, the diversity and the number of plants would be a lot less under woodlands of Tasmanian bluegums or native oaks. 
than it would be where no oaks and no Tasmanian bluegums occurred. And that's simply because of competition for soil moisture. So that, that, that sort of blew the allelopathy theory, or what is now a myth, out of the water and okay. showed that the reason you don't get plants growing underneath certain eucalypts is because of the competitive nature of the root system of certain eucalypt species and the fact that they're so good at sucking up the moisture that they just outcompete any other plant. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, and it's not a pH issue either. Then it's just literally sucking the, all the moisture out with those roots, or maybe also even I'm guessing a bit of shade doesn't help any plants beneath either. Exactly. So it's a shading and it's a water competition issue. It's nothing to do with the chemistry in terms of the leaves themselves or the, or changing the pH of the soil. And and so one of the things that comes out of that is it means that the use of what's often often marketed as a forest mulch, which is just eucalypt branches chipped up, putting that on your garden isn't going to be detrimental to, to any plants in the garden. Like any mulch, it's really helpful. Yeah, that actually segues into the next point nicely. What are some of the fire myths around eukes? Yeah, there's lots of them <laughs> because fire is a pretty emotive topic and, and particularly, you know, the last 10 years or so because of what's been happening in Australia, but, but also overseas in places, again, like California and, and parts of Europe like Spain and Portugal. And again, it's difficult to generalise, but one thing that's often, I guess, people don't really think about is there's actually about 80 different species of eucalypt that are fire sensitive. They're actually killed by fire. So the bulk of all the eucalypt species, about 90% of them, have the ability to produce epicormic buds, either from the branches and the trunk or from the woody massive dormant buds at ground level called the, the lignotuber, or commonly known as the mallee root. And so they can, an individual plant can survive fire by regenerating from these dormant vegetative shoots. But there's about 10% of all the eucalypt species or or 80-odd species that are killed by fire. They rely purely on seed to regenerate after a fire. And of course, you know, it takes some time for a eucalypt to germinate, grow up, flower and produce more seed. And eucalypts don't have a, a seed bank in the soil like some plants do. So if you compare that to another large group of Australian plants, the acacias or the wattles, they have a, a seed bank in the soil. The seeds will remain viable in the soil. So what that means is even in the event of multiple fires close together, you've still got viable seeds in the soil that can germinate. But that's not the case with any eucalypt species. Every eucalypt species, once the seed is shed from the seed pods, they remain viable for a very short period of time. And we're talking weeks or months, not years. So there's no seed soil bank in a lot of eucalypt species, the seed bank is actually within the capsules within the live plant itself. So an individual tree or mallee will flower year after year and produce viable seed each year. And that seed can remain viable within the capsules or the fruits or the gum nuts for up to several decades. So you can have several decades worth of viable seed on a particular plant. And then when it's burnt in a wildfire, all that seed is shed on mass all at once. And uh, yeah, what if, if those plants don't germinate and get up to flowering and seeding stage again and another fire goes through, then these fire-sensitive species will become locally extinct. So yeah, that, that's, 
even when we just look at the regeneration strategies of eucalypts and fire, you know, there's this category where, and it's a really important category from both from both the management of natural landscapes point of view, but also when we're talking about management of eucalypts in the urban environment, because these aren't species you can prune back and expect them to reshoot. They aren't species you can harvest for firewood and expect them to reshoot because they just they just don't. They only regenerate through seed. And I, I guess people might think, oh, eucalypts occur over the whole of Australia. So if some of them get get burnt, then then that's fine because you know there's eucalypts elsewhere that will come in. But even though eucalypts do occur over most of Australia through most habitats, when you look at the individual species, almost all of them have a very small distribution a very restricted distribution. So they're really vulnerable to, to all sorts of threats, but particularly to fire and climate change. So we have a few widespread species. And the well-known ones are the river red gum, Eucalyptus camaldulensis, that occurs in every state and territory except Tasmania. But even then, it's restricted mainly to the river systems and the floodplains. So people in Adelaide and Melbourne will know it because they see it on the, the rivers and the floodplains there. And there's a couple of other widespread species, such as the, the coolabar, which has the botanical name of Eucalyptus coolabar, which is quite nice. A few of the box species, like the grey box, the black box, and also the, the white box. There seems to be any colour you can think of. There's a common name that goes with a box eucalypt there. But the, the vast majority of eucalypt species are really restricted in their natural di- distribution. You know, some species are only known from a few plants. Other species are only known from a total geographical range of a few kilometres. But as you go from spot to spot within Australia, you move from different eucalypt species to different eucalypt species, which is one of the reasons why I'm really interested in them because, you know, you've got not just the diversity in all their features, but when you move around the place geographically, you're always seeing different different species. So like I said, that has all sorts of implications in terms of fire management and the like. <laughs> yeah, so... Where else can we go to with, with fire myths? I mean, one of the most emotive myths, I guess, is that eucalypts are flammable. And for a lot of species, that's certainly true. But are they any more flammable than, than non-eucalypt species, things such as the pines from North America and parts of Europe? The answer there is based on the research that no, they're not. So one of the – and again, it comes down to, to what the trees are we have in Australia it's mainly eucalypts. So when we have a bushfire, we see eucalypts burn. If you go to California, when they have a wildfire, the main trees you see burn, pines and things like sequoias, the, the, the coastal redwoods, because that is the dominant tree over there. So, you know, if you ask a Californian, they might say, oh, yeah, yeah pine trees, conifers in general, they're really flammable because they're the ones they see burn. And, and likewise, you know, in other parts of the world as well, such as in Greece, they were having fires that were mainly fed through species such as oaks and olive trees, which you tend not to think of as flammable, but certainly if the conditions are right, they'll burn as well. So if we, we look at the eucalypts and generalise, yeah, a lot of them are flammable, but, but no more so than any other tree species necessarily. Within the eucalypts, if we start looking at, looking at them more specifically on a species-by-species basis, there's certainly some species that are a lot less flammable than others. So it tends to be the species that shed their bark annually and shed them in long strips or ribbons that get caught in the canopy of the tree. A lot of them are known as ribbon gums. They tend to be the more flammable species because it's like having big 
rolls of paper almost in the canopy of the tree. And those dried bits of bark are quite flammable. And that's just like when you're making a campfire, something you might do is use a little bit of paper towel to get that fire started. Yep, yep. And that's essentially what that tree is doing. It's providing that kindling. Yeah, there's, it's interesting. There's all sorts of different theories as to why eucalypts shed their bark. Only certain species do it, of course. There's a lot of species such as the stringy barks, the iron barks that don't shed their bark at all. And so obviously they're using some sort of different strategy to, to cope with environment or pests and diseases or whatever it might be. But for the species that do shed their bark, there's really not been a lot of research as to why they may do that. And it's probably different for different species, of course. But it may be in some cases to promote fire, which you know then allows the species to regenerate. It may be to remove pests and diseases in the bark itself. A good example there is the scribbly gum with the scribbly gum moth. As the bark sheds each year, you know it starts with a clean slate, so to speak. But there may be other reasons that you know, we haven't even thought about or speculated about as to why some species may shed their bark. But within the eucalypt species that do shed their bark, there's all different types of or different methods of how they shed the bark. So, you know, we've just talked about the ones that shed their bark in long ribbons or strips. But then you get species like the spotted gum, Carimbia maculata, which sheds them in small plates rather than strips. So the spotted gum is actually a very fire-resistant species that has a low flammability. It's a species that has a very low oil content in the leaves. It's a species that sheds its bark in those little clean plates. So it has a smooth trunk, smooth branches, no loose bark in the canopy of the tree. And it's also a species that doesn't tend to build up many dead twigs, sort of small diameter dead twigs in the canopy of the tree. So it's a species I think should be planted more as shelter belts to actually slow the spread of fire rather than being mm. a species that, that promotes fire like some of the other eucalypts. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good example of a, of a eucalypt species that, that goes against the, the general thoughts of eucalypts are flammable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What about the idea that sometimes for some certain eucalypts, fire can help their seeds germinate? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because it depends what you mean by help their ser- seeds germinate. So you can go up to any eucalypt that's alive and healthy with a pair of secateurs and snip the gum nuts or the fruits off, put them in a paper bag, leave, leave that paper bag on the dashboard of your car or on the windowsill of your kitchen, somewhere warm, and within a day or two, all the seeds will, will fall out, particularly if you give them a bit of a shake. And you can sow that seed as you would with the seed of any vegetable or flower or, or anything like that, and, and they'll be quite viable, germinate and grow into plants. So eucalypts don't need fire to release or smoke or anything like that to enable the seeds to become viable. But what you do often find in the wild is that it's quite rare with many eucalypt species to see seedlings, healthy seedlings in the wild except for after a disturbance event and with a lot of eucalypt species, that is a fire. And the reason for that is that a disturbance event will, such as a fire, will remove the foliage off of all the other eucalypts around it or depending on the species of eucalypt, it may kill the the trees around it. So it removes all the competition, the competition for sunlight, but, but more importantly, the competition for soil moisture. So any seeds that do germinate, 
They're not competing with the bigger trees around it for the soil moisture and they can actually get away and grow. So in that sense, you may say that eucalypts do need fire to actually, for the seedlings to actually establish themselves. Although in a garden type situation, they certainly don't need fire. So you can collect the seeds, you can grow the seeds, you can plant the plants in your garden or in your local park or as a street tree, and they'll grow quite well uh, without ever having experienced fire. Gee, that's interesting. There's one thing that we've had mentioned on our podcast, which is smoke water. Can you tell us about, so that's a myth? From my understanding and from everything I've read in my experience, it's a myth that's probably come about through marketing of smoke water. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. So if you're in the business of selling smoke water or marketing it, it, you know, you're not going to tell people that it's not necessary. But yeah, in my experience, it it, it (laughs) won't achieve anything. Except make it, it's fun to deal with and maybe it makes you feel a little bit better and that that you've tried everything. <laughs> it does look like, a, look like a lot of effort to make it yourself, though. I sort of looked at that and said, nah, that's not for me. And I don't want to buy it either. So, <laughs> Well, a lot of people like playing with fire, so it's probably a fun thing to do, I'm sure. That's true. <laughs> so, Dean, what do most people not know or at least not think about with regards to urban ukes? Yeah, I think the thing is that most people don't or forget about the diversity in the group, forget that there's so many species and they are all so different. So a lot of people think that they are just dirty, great big gum trees, you know, your red gums and your Tasmanian blue gums, the the big species where all the myths come from. Most of the myths have an element of truth, but, you know, things to do with risk and fire and the size that they grow to. Whereas, you know, people forget that about a third of all those species, so we're talking several hundred species here, are the multi-stem mallee types that really can't be described as gum trees at all because they're not trees, they're mallees or they're shrubs. Although, of course, that comes down to what your definition of a tree is. So I think it's about the diversity of the group that I like to get across. And there's not a lot of other plant genera that have that sort of, not plant genera, plant groups, I should say, because it's three genera, of course that have that sort of, not just species number, but diversity. The other big Australian group, of course, is the acacias or the wattles. (laughs) But when you talk about acacias or wattles, people understand that a lot of them are shrubs. But that doesn't seem to be the case with eucalypts. That's a great point because, yeah, we just say eucalypt trees. Yep, or gum trees. Or gum trees. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, Dean, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask my guests, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? And this doesn't have to be on topic. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it would be great if anybody listening can go out with a bit of a different eye on eucalypts. And I know a lot of people will already you know, know a lot of the things that I've been talking about, understand some of the diversity, that type of thing. But think about how they're – the diversity in the group. So there are so many species. The bark with all of them is different. The leaves – vary throughout the the different species. And yeah, not to place them all in one basket, so to speak. We we actually run some open days several times a year at the Arboretum where we have most of these species growing. And and the thing that most people take out of it, regardless of what you show them or what you tell them, is that, oh, I wouldn't have picked that as a eucalypt at all. Or, oh, I, I didn't know so many of them were like this. I thought they were all big trees. And that's always really pleasing to see. So yeah, if you happen to be right anywhere near Adelaide around 
early <laughs> April or October this year. We'll be having some open days there where you can see all of these species from all over Australia, all on the one site. But failing that, yeah, get out into the bush and have a look at them there. Fantastic. And check out the show notes as well where there will be links to the Arboretum. Thanks so much for an awesome episode, Dean. No, that's all right. I hope I didn't ramble too much. (laughs) As Dean mentioned, there's a grain of truth in each of these myths, but they're each only true for a select few species. Eucalypts have dominated the Australian landscape for millions of years, and it isn't fair to lump them all in the same basket. Check out the show notes for links, follow the Plants Go Here podcast, and turn notifications on so you don't miss out on the fourth part of this series with a special mystery guest.